0: Here we go. Good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Uh, My name is Simon Tupman. I'm the host of this series of monthly conversations with luminaries from the legal services sector. And uh, this month, uh, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Professor Richard Suskin from his home in Hertfordshire in England. Uh, My guest today has been an advocate of radical reform in the legal services industry for the past 40 years or so. And throughout that time it's fair to say that his message has been pretty consistent over the years and that is effectively that we can and should find ways of using technology to improve the practice of law and the administration of justice. He's an advisor to judiciaries, to governments, to law firms and in-house counsel and has been since 1998 and he's a technology advisor to I think now six Lord Chief Justices of England and Wales since 1998. Uh, He's published uh, recently a a new book, Online Courts and the Future of Justice, which builds on the previous thinking, which uh, was shown in his previous books, The Future of Law, The End of Lawyers? Uh, The Future of the Professions and Tomorrow's Lawyers. Richard, thank you for joining us on Law Chat today.
1: Yeah, really good to be with you. Thank you, Simon, for inviting me.
0: A great pleasure. How are you?
1: Not bad. Uh, the, the, over in the UK, things are pretty tough. I think we're all hunkering down for a difficult winter, but there seems to be the promise of either a vaccine or better treatment on the horizon. So hopefully, if we assemble here, say, nine months from now, life will have uh, regained some kind of normality. But it's tough. Less tough, actually, to be honest, for white-collar workers who can do what we do from home and really difficult for people for whom their work is actually a place.
0: So do you think from the perspective of the uh, legal services industry generally, and uh, lawyers in particular, do you think their world is worse off now than it was compared to 2008 after the global financial crisis?
1: The general feeling I'm getting from, and I tend to speak to major law firms uh, around the world and other professional firms, is that the last six or seven months wasn't as bad as they had feared. Certainly for most firms, uh, a dip in in turnover but as i say again relative to the rest of the community uh, it seems that most lawyers have managed certainly in the large firms to keep their heads above water there's still although suppressed there's still considerable commercial activity people are still in disagreement some people are still moving houses and doing deals and so uh, and there's still massive issues of compliance and so I think it's, it's not that lawyers have been twiddling their thumbs, but they find it very difficult not to be out and about, uh, meeting and greeting, dining and discussing. And it's, it's a very different way of life.
0: Uh, it 's interesting because um, as you know i 've enjoyed your readings over the years, and I have in my left hand here at the moment a, a copy of one of your previous books the end of lawyers' question marks and and you wrote this just around the time of the global financial crisis and in the introduction to the book, uh, you talked there about the strategic challenges facing law firm leaders at that time, and I want to read you, if I can, with reference to the the second major challenge that you referred to there in, in which you said. The second and much bigger challenge for law firms is to ensure their long-term health. This calls for leadership, vision and strength of purpose quite different attributes from those management skills that help improve operational efficiency. The main concern here is best articulated by many young partners with whom I speak. They worry about the viability and sustainability of the businesses they are inheriting. They wonder if the glory years are gone and if the old business model is broken. They find themselves as part owners of firms that are weighed down by heavy fixed costs and that aspire to a pyramidic uh, organisational structure of lawyers that no longer seems appropriate. They cannot see how their firms can reinvent themselves and yet at the same time keep the business running. It sounds like changing clothes while riding a bicycle. My question is what's changed?
1: As the, the words of a far younger man. That's the first thing to say. <laughs> Uh, you could actually have, uh, that could be equally, <laughs> I forgot I'd written that, I should probably repurpose it and publish it today. Um, I think people often say, and I don't know if it's implicit in your question, well look, you've been saying that the world's going to be turned upside down for Lars for many years and it hasn't, it hasn't really happened. I think the shift is this, that when I was writing the end of Lars question mark, in many ways I was talking about opportunity. I was saying there is a chance if you feel impelled to, uh, to do so, you could actually steal a march in the competition There's an opportunity to introduce new labor models to use technology to deliver your services to the community in a very different way that would mark you out and differentiate you so what i was offering really was an opportunity for competitive advantage i think the shift now has moved into the 20s and much of what i said i think does carry forward and through covid we're seeing i think particularly there's going to be huge pressure on costs in the 20s. I think the shift now is it's about avoiding competitive disadvantage. That's to say, whereas in 2008, this was an opportunity to steal a march uh, in 2020, if you don't rethink your business model, it's going to be difficult for you to continue prospering through the 20s. So I think that shift's important. It's also true to say that very few firms took up my challenge. Uh, I, it's hard to think of any of the very successful firms that have redesign their business model. But I sense certainly even before COVID, um, probably because of the, the the advent both of new on the horizon of new competition like the big four accounting firms and of the emerging ai technologies i was beginning to discern a real change in leadership where i think even the most successful firms realized that unless they changed their model it was going to be hard for them to continue being as successful as they've been so it's that shift in 2008 here's the promise of competitive advantage to a message now really you've got to do this if you want to if you want to stay in the game
0: so uh, really the, the urgent message there for the laggards who might uh, still consider themselves to be in the race but um, are, are at risk of being left behind
1: yes but i don't want to say it's urgent uh, it's a bit like ai where i think almost all the, the short-term predictions being made about ai overstate it's likely impact whereas i think actually most of the long-term long-term predictions understate it's likely impact so will ai transform legal practice in the next two years of course not by 2030 i think yes it'll have had a profound impact that's why i say it defines the challenge for us the 20s is the decade where we'll move away from automation using technology which is essentially grafting technology onto our past ways of working to some form of transformation where the very business model itself will be changed and fundamentally this will be a move away from the consultative one-to-one advisory model charging for your time to the commoditization, the productization, the the development of of legal solutions that will be available online or indeed developed as modules that can be integrated within clients' practices. And that's very different. What you're doing is essentially is you will be licensing your reusable knowledge rather than a kind of disposable service where you advise, pass the knowledge along on a one-off basis
0: interestingly i want to ask you too because at the time you wrote that passage in the end of lawyers the legal services act was just taking effect in england and wales uh, and the the big trend that obviously was towards liberalization one of the the three major trends that you talked about in tomorrow's lawyers there. There was the, um, the more for less challenge, uh, liberalisation, also technology. Now, here in New Zealand, of course, we haven't had uh, a Legal Services Act, at least nothing on the scale of uh, what was planned in England and Wales. Do you think technology alone can can drive change, or do you think jurisdictions like this country um, are in need of uh, a further shake-up?
1: For me, as I, I say, there were these, as you rightly point out, these three factors, pressure and costs, uh liberalization which i now talk i now talk in terms of new providers in the marketplace is subtle differencing about technology and i actually have to add a fourth driver of change which is COVID, which we can maybe discuss but i think has accelerated some changes and decelerated others uh, for those jurisdictions that have both liberalization and technology and cost pressure um, on their plate i think it's more that's more of a perfect storm um, Without liberalization, this, to some extent, I think, protects or discourages uh, lawyers from fundamental change. But what we're seeing even in the United States, and it's anticipated in that book from 2008, is the, what I call decomposition, other people call disaggregation, but the breaking down of legal work into constituent tasks, some of which are absolutely vital to the conduct of a dealer dispute. It might be document review and litigation or good project management but actually arguably aren't part of aren't brought within the ambit of of legal services and so you're seeing for example the big 4 in the united states being involved in the legal services market not directly giving legal advice but being in the project management document management uh, arena which if you take for example the e discovery e disclosure industry in the united states that is delivered by largely delivered by tech companies and um, new local law companies, as it were, and that doesn't fall far of the of, of the of the regulation. But there's no doubt if you have a regulatory structure which are, allows us, we've got non-lawyers to share profits with lawyers, if it allows uh, the setting up of alternative business structures that are regulated, uh, but they're just regulated in different ways. If you allow, crucially for me, the, the introduction of of external capital, venture capital, private equity in the legal world, and that will, I think, accelerate the changes. And that's why, in the UK, again, I keep referring to them, but the Big Four, each of them, under our liberalisation regulations, are alternative business structures. And I think if you if we reconvened in five years, you'll see them as very much on the league tables. The the now if without that liberalisation, I think people can still play at the edges. Um, now. I suspect people listening in, and there won't be many at this time of night, and thank you both of you for turning up. But I think many people listening in who are providers of legal services will have a different view from the recipients. And almost all my work has really been focused on what it's like to be a client, what's like to be in the receiving end. And my view is, and this was really the thinking behind the reforms in England and Wales, that it's a good thing to have greater choice in the legal marketplace it'll bring prices down and probably encourage greater use of technology. It's a good thing to have better funding uh, of new innovative technologies rather than asking for lawyers to fund it from their own back pockets. So long as, and so long as it's regulated, it's not uh, some kind of uh, messy wild west where anyone can do as they will. So long as it is regulated and controlled, I think from this point of view, the recipients, the clients, this is a good thing. Uh, What I would also say is it's very early days. Um, It's only really, it's been less than a decade that we've had our liberalization in force. And I really do think in in the context of, um, I always think our legal services industry in the UK is pretty much unchanged for 150 years, going back to legislation in the 1880s and 1870s. But it seems to me that we shouldn't make assumptions about whether or not liberalization is working just on the basis of a decade. I can see uh, what happens, and this is classic of disruptive change, is that in the early days a lot of the impact is at the lower end of the market. So it might affect and consumer services rather than what we call big law services. So I think you need to take a 20 year view in this to see the transformation that I and others were anticipating. 20 years sounds a long time, but if like me, you've been thinking about this stuff for 40 years, it, it doesn't seem very long ago that I, as a law student in 81, started thinking about how technology might be used in, in, in legal practice. And now many people might think, well, I'll be retired by then. But I, I think it'd be nice if we had a, a, a concept within the legal profession of stewardship that we are not just taking out and of course we deliver great service but we're also trying to put in place a better legal services and court service structure and infrastructure uh, than we had when we joined the profession
0: have you been disappointed at, at the pace of change i think you wrote somewhere in one of your books only the clergy are more cautious about change
1: yeah, that's right. We, Daniel, my son, who's an economist in Oxford, and I wrote a book called The Future of the Professions, and we looked at eight different professions. So we looked at, we looked at health, we looked at accounting and tax, architecture, journalism. We looked at teaching as well, of course, as law, uh, consulting, and the clergy and we we do joke but it's not a joke it's a reality that we uh, that the legal world is, uh, is is the most conservative of all other than the clergy that said what has been fascinating over the last six months this is not inconsistent with the point but it is a refinement um is that in response for example to the closing of physical courts and the establishment of what we are now broadly calling remote courts various technological options uh Because the platform genuinely was burning, we did see judges, lawyers, policymakers moving remarkably quickly, being phenomenally adaptable and resourceful so it's not that lawyers aren't capable of this kind of change it's just they tend not to and part of that might be an inherent conservatism and partly with i i often jest with major law firms it's hard to convince a room full of millionaires that they've got their business model wrong the reality is certainly in big law in the uk and the us it's such a prosperous business it's not at all obvious you're wanting to change until that iceberg is melting
0: which brings us to uh, to talk about uh, the courts and access to justice, which is the the theme behind uh, your latest book, uh, Online Courts and the Future of Justice. Uh, and in that book, there are very similar themes that I think that you that you, uh, that you um, posit and, and put forward to uh, in an effort effectively to say, um, you know, we we have a problem um in the world in that a lot of people don't have access to justice do you want to enlarge on on that problem and what you see as some of the solutions
1: yes just to put it in context more and more general work i i joke that i write the same book every four years and in a way i do what i'm trying to do is uh identify the ways in which technology can both streamline and transform the way we work now a lot of my work certainly my published work and my consulting work in over the last 20 or 30 years has been with law firms, but I've always been involved also with the courts. I just hadn't written about a book on it, but I thought it was time to turn that lens on court service under access to justice. And you're absolutely right. It Pre-COVID, we can get back to COVID in a second, but pre-COVID, the reality is say if you take civil disputes in the most advanced jurisdictions, resolving a dispute costs too much, takes too long the process is unintelligible unless you're a lawyer and somehow it's beginning to feel out a step in a digital society so my question is to what extent might we use technology to, to increase access to justice and as i undertook my research across the world began to find some remarkable stats about backlogs for example in brazil the backlog of cases within their court systems 80 million cases in india it's 30 million cases and then if you look more widely, the OECD figures suggest that only 46% of people in our world live under the protection of the law. So this is, it seems to me, inaccess to justice on a gargantuan scale. And we as lawyers, I think, should be certainly aware, but probably collectively embarrassed by this. So I wonder whether or not there might be different ways of offering access to justice, whether or not there may be easier, cheaper, quicker, less forbidding ways for people to understand And enforce their entitlements and that really was the premise of the book where i wanted to essentially put forward a new architecture for a court system a way of resolving disputes that i think would make it far more accessible far more affordable far more widely available and and really make a difference this was published in november 2019 rather almost a year ago of course i had no sense at that stage of what was about to befall us and to some extent what i say there has I think is useful uh for the the current for the current crisis but a lot of what's actually been going on in response to the COVID crisis if you'd like me to speak a little bit about that has not been exactly as i envisaged when i talk about online courts
0: so uh, the question that i posted on linkedin this week is uh is a court a place or a service which is a question that you put in your book
1: mm-hmm. Yes, that's the question I ask. I think we, what I say is we need a new mindset in thinking about the future. And whereas, this goes back to the automation transformation point, the tendency for most lawyers and judges to say, well, how can we take some of the costs out of our current service? How can we perhaps reduce, say, in England, the thousands of pages of rules of procedure maybe to a few hundred rather than a few thousand? Uh, But none of this, it seems to me, is fundamentally transformative. And even in the COVID crisis, where what we've done essentially has dropped existing procedure into Zoom, uh, running a video hearing is not a transformative process, just no more than remote working from lawyers as a shift in paradigm. What we're simply doing is relocating the place at which the white-collar person is doing their work. A fundamental transformation will be... for example, in relation to rules, won't be a cutting some of the red tape. It'll be starting again with a minimalist approach. It'll be asking whether or not in the first instance judges are the best people uh, to address all disputes. Fundamentally for me, it will be a service that will offer a great deal of help to non-lawyers online to help them understand Their legal position to help them understand the options available to them. We need tools to help people who are self represented to organize their arguments to present their evidence and so forth. So it really isn't a question of Let's drop the existing court system into a video conferencing environment and suggesting jobs done. That is simply an example of automation and with legal automation and court uh, law practice automation and court automation for about 60 years now in the 20s. I think we will change that fundamentally
0: So what do you see as being some of the hurdles to the ideas that you put forward in the book?
1: Well, uh, going back to your earlier question, is court of service or a place? The the minute you suggest that a court is not a place, as it were, you come up against a whole bundle of very understandable cultural, uh, emotional, psychological concerns. uh, Very, very well-meaning, well-intentioned, great public servants, judges and lawyers too, um, cannot imagine a world in which justice isn't dispensed in a courtroom. They cannot imagine a world in which there isn't uh, oral presentation of of evidence and argument. So immediately the visceral gut reaction, the instinct of of many lawyers to think this is dangerous. uh, There's an instinct also, I think, to to find some some law to justify this. So people will be talking about Article 6 in Europe and saying this is not a fair trial because it's not public and so forth. So there's cultural concerns, then there'll be legal obstacles. There's technical challenges too. Uh, People worry about open justice. They say uh, a system uh, where courts hear cases in one way or another electronically won't be visible or transparent in the same way. People understandably worry that most public sector technology projects fail, and therefore, here's just going to be another waste of money. Um, and others worry about the majesty of the courtroom being lost—that you don't have the solemnity of the proceedings if they're conducted online or in a different way. So, the whole—as you know—a quarter of my book is devoted to addressing the super tanker objections to all of this. It will not surprise you, or. I suspect listeners to think that I, I bat most of them away. It's not that I dismiss them, but I, I, I like to give them their best hearing and then show why I think um, there's a couple of problems and most people's thinking about uh, online courts. First of all, I think it, uh, and this is understandable, but most lawyers and judges do look at all of this through the spectacles of lawyers and judges. And, uh, and I think it's important to, again, to take a step back and ask what is it court users want rather than uh, what we have today is a system designed by lawyers for lawyers. And if we open our minds to the idea, and this is a huge challenge, that clients, customers, court users, however you want to call them, they, they don't want lawyers and courts they want outcomes of a different sort. So they want an outcome which might be, um, I just want my dispute out of the way. It might be, I want to have the opportunity publicly to air my grievance. It might be that I want an apology. There's a lot of research about why it is that people go to the law, but preservation of our current way of doing things is not the preoccupation of most users of the court service this is why i often tell a story when i spoke to 2000 neurosurgeons and they asked me to be controversial my opening line to them was that patients don't want neurosurgeons an audience i said patients want health Um, and i said for a particular type of health problem you're the best answer we have today, but in the future, it will be non-invasive therapy will be more important than surgery. But just this mindset that people don't want neurosurgeons they want health. Well, it's an interesting question. People don't want lawyers and courts. I, I say in general, science, they want the outcomes that lawyers and courts bring. We've got a little deep thinking about what these outcomes are and whether we might deliver them in different ways. So lots of objections, uh, but I think most of them we can cope with if our focal point is, let's make the service more affordable more intelligible more proportionate if our focal point is lawyers and judges and whether or not it maintains their way of life or it sustains their self-esteem uh, I go back to the point that's deeply unpopular, I say, the law is no more there to provide a living for lawyers and judges than ill health is there to provide a living for doctors. It's not the purpose of law to keep lawyers and judges in a living and working as they always have done. The minute you become user-focused, the minute you think of in, in system design terms, design thinking terms, it opens up a, a whole new set of possibility for the public resolution of disputes. So that's what the book's basically about. And of course, it's fairly radical stuff, but it's, uh, you know, I've been seeing a general in 1996 that was the same argument for lawyers and if you go back a, a, a decade my first book in 1987 on artificial intelligence and law I've always set out to try and challenge the status quo not for its own sake but just because I think we can do a better job
0: yeah well I just uh, that point you were raising there about seeing seeing the problem through uh, not necessarily through the judges or the lawyers eyes but uh, in terms of outcome thinking and uh, I just I had a question come in from uh, Melissa Lyon, whom, whom I know in Australia, who said, liberalization and changing business models have been hampered by a failure to consider the client consumer voice and their experience. Keen to hear your views, Richard. So well, I,
1: I, it's, it, it really just fortifies the point I've been making that uh, it's interesting. I think as uh, different from other industries and sectors, currently the customer and client isn't yet king. Uh, The customer becomes king when when the market offers a sufficient range of options. If the market is really offering only one option, it's very hard for the customer to have any real clout. That's why, and this is a little bit of a a, perhaps a digression, but it it does interest me that there's a growing movement around the world uh, of chief operating officers in major in-house legal departments uh, being appointed. So the general counsel who wants to remain, as it were, the, the Council to the generals, uh, gives responsibility for procurement, technology, new business models, innovation to these chief operating officers and big legal departments, biggest companies in the world. And what's interesting through organizations such as CLOCK is they're now coming together, and it's a little bit of a movement. And I think this is a defining moment in our history, because although individually customers and consumers aren't king, I think this is an unavoidable wave of change being brought by the collaboration of these clients so i think w- even if liberalization doesn't urge law firms to work differently i think we'll see the collaborative efforts of clients bringing about this shift that i've been working towards for many years
0: uh, before we wrap up here i wanted to ask you uh, y- your advice to any law firm leaders who are tune- tuning into this who uh, take on board all the recommendations that you've made in the observations in your books but yet still find that they have great difficulty gaining traction uh, persuading uh, the other partners or directors that, that they have to change and that there is uh, opportunity initially uh, that, that's uh, provided by technology and that if they don't change then um, here we are in 2020 that they risk um, being left a long way behind what would you say to those those leaders who say you know what can I do to accelerate the pace of change
1: well, there's there's so much to say. Uh, and let me try and keep it brief. You have got to think just now a plan in three timescales. One, how do we get through the crisis period. Secondly, post COVID, how do we industrialize what's gone well and make sure we're taking advantage of the insights we've gained. But thirdly, in the longer term, we've probably got to revisit our entire business model and how we organize ourselves. The difficulty with that is I often say it's hard to change the wheel on a moving car you've got a moderately successful business, you can't just down tools. So my first answer to this is you actually have to start a new vehicle. I'm pretty clear in that now looking across the industries. Self disruption of your current business is very hard. So the investment to make is to start up uh, a startup or a a series of startups with your own business. I can't see how you disrupt them within. Otherwise, what you're changing is just process improvement. So you need to, uh, I believe, start a new vehicle. But the bigger point in some ways is about leadership. We've gone through, and it's hinted at to some extent in that extract you mentioned earlier, we've gone through a period of about 30 years or so of relatively uninterrupted growth, where to be a leader in a law firm is by and large to be a fair weather leader. Uh, And in a fairly leisurely way, consensus has always been sought and the partnership moved together with a common will. I think leadership in tougher times is not like that. And I don't want autocracy, but I think we need boldness. And I don't think you can take everyone with you. And it seems to me that it's about building a small coalition of senior individuals who want to bring about massive change. This is classic change theory, creating a sense of urgency, but without necessarily winning the support of all the firm, instituting change and bringing about change so it's a move away from to some extent from the consensus and the collegiality of the standard partnership to more of a corporate model where leadership means leadership it doesn't mean passive management it means putting a point in that horizon, a brave, bold position, and working towards it, and taking those who you can with you. So it requires a very different style. And many partners, I think, would wince at this and say this is very non-partnerial. But I think, it'd be, I think the, in the end, Fear of Freedom, Erich Fromm, I think, in the end, people quite like to be led. Uh, they quite like to be taken to a new and a better place. So for me, the best firms in the late 20s will be those whose leaders now make these bold leaps without yet having everyone on board.
0: Excellent sound advice. Well, look, thank you very much. It's amazing how fast 30 minutes goes, but uh, look, I really appreciate you sharing your insights there about uh, where we are and who knows in another 10 years time, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how far we, we really have come. And if you and I are still doing this in 10 years time, then let's have that conversation. Um, great to see you. Thank you for joining us and, um, and keep well.
1: Well, thank you, Simon. I wish everyone well, thank you.
0: Thanks very much. Bye-bye now.